Welcome to Finding Proof, where we discuss all things early stage VC. We're your hosts, Thanasis and Jenny of the Proof Fund, and our goal is to get to know the best seed and early stage VCs out there. In this episode, we get to know Cameron Boromand, who is a partner with Hughes, an early stage venture fund based out of Seattle that invests in enterprise software companies in the Pacific Northwest. Cameron, thanks for joining us today. Appreciate having you on the podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about Fuse? What is Fuse and how did you guys come about the fund? Appreciate y'all having me today. Thank you for the time. Fuse is a venture fund that is based in the Pacific Northwest, based in Seattle. Myself and my two partners spun out of our prior firms. Myself and Kellen were at a firm called Ignition Partners, which was a leader in investing in primarily enterprise software for the past few decades in the Pacific Northwest. Then our other partner, Brennan Wales, joined us from a firm called eVentures, which is now called Headline down in the Bay Area. And the vision that we had was we saw, you know, having been building in the Pacific Northwest and investing here, we saw a unique opportunity where there's so much enterprise software talent in this region, but it lacked a lot of the capital to support those entrepreneurs at the earliest stages. And so we spun out of Ignition and eVentures. Ignition decided after six funds that they weren't going to raise another fund. And so it created a very unique opportunity to us to spin out, but leverage all the existing infrastructure, whether it was the office, the back office, but also a lot of the enterprise relationships that have been built over two decades. So we decided to spin out and we took a slightly different approach to our limited partner community. We went out and pitched a lot of strategic executives in the Pacific Northwest to join us as limited partners, folks that we knew during our time at at Ignition and and having been investing in the community. And now we have over 200 of these strategic executives helping us source, win, and then build post-investment. So it's really become our biggest differentiator. So we spun out in 2020, probably the best time in human history to go out and raise a fund right before COVID got going. We had two months of in-person meetings booked and pushed it back by a month thinking, I don't know if you all remember the phrase, two weeks to stop the spread. That was going out. So we're like, hey, just wait two weeks and then we'll go get back to in-person meetings. Sure. Yeah. Obviously what ended up happening is ended up getting pushed out. And so we just decided, hey, we're going to get this done over Zoom and raised $173 million for our first fund back in 2020. Congrats. And what are the roots of the part? Like the partners come from what, the enterprise software world? Or talk to us a little bit more about that. So the Ignition Fund's prior founders came from enterprise software. So they were ex-Microsoft and Macaw, which later became AT&T Wireless. And they invested across six funds. And, yeah, you know, Brendan's prior firm had operating experience as well. Kellen and myself actually came from slightly different backgrounds. We started our careers in investment banking, and that's why I originally got fell in love with working with founders. It was a small boutique bank based in San Francisco, lower middle market software companies. These are folks that have built their babies for long periods of time, and we're now ready to go through some sort of liquidity event, whether it was raising additional capital, typically taking some money off the table, or selling to a large strategic. So it's a highly emotional process. And as you all know, when you're going through that emotional process as the CEO, you don't have a lot of people you can talk to. And so it was obviously helping put the material together, helping put the the financial package together, but really shepherding through the founder through a highly emotional process of a lot of times selling their, what they spent their life working on. And so that's where I fell in love working with founders, really got to appreciate the SaaS business model, but 
at the same time wanted to get back to the Pacific Northwest, saw the technology ecosystem here going up and to the right, driven obviously by Microsoft and Amazon that are based up here, the two biggest enterprise software companies in the world with AWS driving most of Amazon's market cap. So moved back and said, hey, I'm going to dedicate my life to building in this ecosystem. And how many companies are part of Fund One thus far, kind of tandem with that? What's the criteria set that you guys use to evaluate opportunities? Yeah, so we have 24 companies in Fund One, and we really invest across the early stage, seed and Series A. About half the companies that we back are at that pre-seed or early seed category. And really what we look for is founder market fit. The founder has some sort of unfair experience that they saw in their prior lives and they are spinning out to go solve that mission. And then about half the capital goes into what we call core or late seed and series A companies, typically post-product market fit, scaling revenue where we come in and lead. So it ends up being check sizes anywhere from 500K all the way to 12 million pre-seed, seed, and series A. We try and stay very focused on that early stage. So you guys are still deploying out of fund one? We're actually started, we're actually now deploying out of fund two. So we have two, three investments that we've made out of fund two. Great. And talk to us a little bit about the Seattle ecosystem, because I think that's core to your thesis, right? And we've spoken to some other people out of Seattle. What is your perspective? Is it an underserved market? What is unique about what you have, the nexus of opportunities in Seattle. The unique thing about this ecosystem is it's it's flies a little bit under the radar. It's a pretty humble town. People don't like to beat them beat their chest and talk about the Pacific Northwest a lot, but it's got the two biggest enterprise software companies in the world, Microsoft and Amazon. There's no city in the world that has the enterprise software market cap that Seattle does. And now actually the first sign that you see when you drive on Amazon's campus is this massive Google Cloud sign. So Google Cloud is actually based in the Pacific Northwest as well. And so all the internet piping and cloud piping flows through this region and this ecosystem. And so when a lot of firms in this region got going in the early 2000s, the only, you know, there was Microsoft, Amazon really wasn't a thing and Microsoft wasn't spinning out founders at a very fast clip, but that was really the only player in this ecosystem. And so we sat down with the Ignition founders and said, hey, you know, tr- you know, trying to learn from them what went well, what didn't go well. And the feedback we got is honestly, we think we were... 10 to 15 years too early to this ecosystem. And really what happened over the next 10 to 15 years is you saw about seven years, people really starting to spin out of Amazon. Their stock invested to the point they'd made enough money where they felt comfortable and they were able to, at Amazon, get a, you know a bit of a different experience than a lot of the Microsoft founders that we back. A lot of folks at Amazon worked on a very specific use case or problem where maybe they were in the warehouse and logistics team where they spun out and have an idea for that, or the Amazon Go computer vision team where they spin out and have an idea to go build a computer vision solution. It provided great diversity for this ecosystem. But then what you started to see really over the past five years is all these HQ2s being built, primarily engineering offices. So Salesforce acquired Tableau, and this became their HQ2. It's got a massive office, Uber, Snapchat, JP Morgan has a big cloud headquarters here. And so every major technology company started to build massive HQ2s here. And so we see quite a bit of founders spinning out of those regions. And then the, the last piece is you have the next generation of SaaS leaders that have been built here, whether it's iSertis or Outreach, SmartSuite, DocuSign, which is really a Pacific Northwest-based company that was Ignition's largest outcomes. And so it has the right level of diversity from entrepreneurs that have seen what that hair on fire, fast-paced growth looks like that have then 
cents left to start their own businesses, but it's really, it's really a past five to seven year thing, which we think is a unique opportunity to go capitalize on that. Obviously the current market environment is top of mind for everyone in our space and not just in our particular asset class. How are you viewing the current market? If you had a crystal ball, what are you forecasting and what advice are you giving to your founders right now? I wish I could be good at forecasting. Yeah, maybe I'd be in the public equities world. But I think the advice we're giving is, hey, just prepare. Prepare in case this is a prolonged downturn or recession. And we have individual conversations with all of our founders, making sure they understand their cash runway burn situation. For the ones that have an opportunity to continue to execute and have cash and say, hey, look, we're, let's continue to build. And the folks that come out of this downturn are going to come out very strong. For the folks that are maybe not growing as fast and need a little bit more money, we think of creative solutions to help make sure that they can weather the storm. And so, you know, for us, the first thing is working with the portfolio, make sure each company has a plan and feels comfortable to execute over the next few years. But from an investing standpoint, it's staying focused, staying disciplined on the early stage, staying focused on ownership, in the companies we back, we are leading rounds, typically taking a board seat about half the time. And so right. not straying from the core strategy that got us here, just making sure as we have been over the past few years to be paying attention to ownership and valuation and not get caught up in a little bit of the hype or the FOMO over the past few years. And what we spend a lot of time thinking about, maybe worrying about a little bit is how the late stage private mm-hmm. markets are reacting and really more how much capital is available at the later stages. And so the series B, C, D market, as our companies continue to execute and mature, are a lot of the capital that's been raised over the past few years, is it tied up in reserves for their existing portfolio? Are they gonna continue to make investments over the next six to nine months? At what pace? Obviously the bar has gone higher, but Mm -hmm. just making sure we have a really solid understanding of who's writing checks, what pace, how have the growth metrics changed and make sure we're communicating that to our companies. Have you seen any changes into that pattern so far? Are the follow-on investors slowing down, looking inwards in their portfolio? Are companies taking longer to finance their growth? What have you seen so far this year? Yeah, I was talking to a board member of a company, this is top 10 growth firm, and they said, hey, I'm on the board of this company that was last valued at $1.5 billion. It sure would be valued at $200 million. So what do we do? Do we cut the valuation? In that case, maybe some of the top talent in that business might leave. Do we continue right. to fund the business at the current valuation? Maybe that's not the best way to use, be a steward of our limited partner capital that's been trusted to us. And so there's a lot of tough decisions that are being made in that growth market. And I think a lot of that is actually to come over the next three to six months, especially as auditors start to get in the books of these, the private sector funds, and maybe have some disagreements on how some of these private holdings are valued. And it'll be very interesting to see Q1 marks coming out. But so we are seeing a lot of that, but we're also continuing to see high quality companies continue to get funded. It's the ones that are on the fringe that probably would have got around done a year ago, maybe they have, they're not, it's not obvious, but they probably could have muscled around through a year ago. Right now, those companies, it's, it's just a little harder to push them through, but the, you know, the ones that are still growing 3X and our capital efficient are still getting done. Right. Have you guys yourselves added any supplemental criteria as a result of this current market? Yeah, 90% of our capital and fund one went into companies that were generating revenue. Mm-hmm. I think it's, I think we're going to continue to, you know, we'll invest early. Like I said, half our companies are at the earlier stage, but they end up being right. 
about 10% of the capital, 500K to a million dollar investments. And so I think for us, particularly with the core investments where we're writing a five to $12 million investment, it's continuing to underwrite existing customer use cases. How consistent is the use cases across their customer set? How do we leverage our limited partner community to make sure that we're doubling down on time to value for these customers versus just it's a killer team and they built a killer product, but really continuing to look for proof points on the go-to-market. And what is the pattern of kind of solutions that you see? If you look at enterprise software, do you focus on vertical solutions within certain industries? Do you focus on workflow improvement solutions, which is a more horizontal type of application that applies to a lot of markets? What is your thesis around the markets that you go after? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, for us, it's main potatoes, enterprise software, vertical software. And that's really the talent in this region. But the overarching layer on top of all that is artificial intelligence. And we think we're in like the you know the second inning of what AI can do within these large enterprises. Typically, the types of companies that we're backing, it's a software product either sold horizontally across industry or into a vertical and either collecting some sort of very interesting data asset and typically augmenting an existing business user within the organization. And over time, if you're a piece of software that collects interesting data, you can apply predictive analytics, machine learning, AI, whatever you want to call it to help provide insights or just make that product increasingly stickier within the organization. And so those are the types of products that we love. I think Seattle is the best city for artificial intelligence applied to large enterprises and identifying those use cases and knowing how to build. But we're staying pretty focused on meat and potatoes software. Is there a portfolio company or two that you'd want to highlight? Yeah, absolutely. There's this company called WellSaid Labs. It's based here in the Pacific Northwest. It's spun out of the late Microsoft founder, Paul Allen's artificial intelligence incubator here in Seattle. And mm-hmm. what they built is the most advanced synthetic voice product for large enterprises and real impressive advanced deep learning and AI that you can go and, and as a content creator within a large enterprise, instead of hiring a voice actor to come in and dub certain types of content, whether it's education and training programs, whether it's marketing and promotional, you can go in and build using the well-set engine and build very realistic voice and content experiences for your users. And so that was a company that we've got to know for a long period of time. We led their $10 million series A round, but just a, the perfect example of software being sold into a business user, either content creators or product teams within large enterprises to bring a voice to life for these teams. Yeah. So if you look at Wellset Labs, is that something that a lot of people have tried to make these synthetic voices? What is the breakthrough that this team was able to achieve? And is that because... AI is now advancing to the point where you can create this more complicated. Yeah, that's right. I think for a lot of the companies that we back, they're at that intersection of some of the advancements in deep learning over the past few years that make it much easier to apply it to real world scenarios at scale. Well said's a great example. Another company that we backed was this business, Carbon Robotics. As we think about that's a good example of a horizontal business. Carbon Robotics is a vertical business selling into agriculture. This founder started Isilon Systems that went public and sold for $2.25 billion to EMC. He then ran a lot of the deep learning at Uber, obviously one of the best deep learning teams in the world. And then he set his sights on agriculture. And they built this massive piece of hardware, this machine that gets pulled behind a John Deere tractor, identifies what's a weed versus what's a plant using deep learning, and shoots the weed using a laser. And so pretty futuristic wow. stuff. And I was talking to the founder and he says, hey, this is a really only possible over the past few years because of some of these 
advancements in deep learning to quickly identify what is a weed. And I went to the farm. It was hard for my naked eye to identify what is a weed, a baby weed versus what's a baby carrot, for example. And the machine moves at a pretty fast clip and is shooting these weeds left and right. And so we love these examples of very advanced deep learning, but applied to real use cases in this situation, helping farmers with their biggest problem, which is weeding. Right now, they're either hiring migrant labor that primarily comes up for Mexico, the next generation of labor and a lot of the labor shortages, finding people to do this work is increasingly hard to find, or they use chemicals like Roundup. And increasingly, obviously, we're seeing the harmful negative effects from using chemicals in our food supply chain. Yeah, I was at one of my business school reunions recently, and I attended a lecture where somebody was talking about the promise of AI. And in fact, his point was that, you know, as you see these newer companies make AI the center of their full kind of operational model, like Uber, like Facebook, like a lot of others. His thesis was that now it's the operating model of the enterprise, if you want to stay ahead, is actually changing. The things that you would teach 20, 30 years ago are now changing. And every enterprise needs to think about how do I integrate AI and data science into my operation? Is that Do you agree with that? Is that something you share? Like, how do you think about that? Yeah, we 100% agree with that. And from our prior investing lives, we saw enterprises starting to look for solutions like this. I think the key thing for us is it's solving a real business problem within the enterprise. And because they're solving that problem, they're able to collect data where they can apply you know, AI. We've seen a lot of companies that are oftentimes too horizontal, maybe not focus on that specific problem within large companies, but try and go in as a platform for everything. Typically, we gravitate towards companies that are solving a specific problem. Another example from our time at Ignition was a company that we backed called Icertis. Icertix is one of the leader in enterprise contract management. You think about large enterprises, all the contracts they have across multiple different languages, across multiple different offices, throughout their vendor and supplier network. How do you get intelligence from those contracts? Well, act one is you got to have the system where they all sit. And then act two is the intelligence where you can understand, hey, am I discounting across a certain office more than I am a different office? Or how do I get deeper insights into my supply chain using this sort of advanced insights. Going into your background a little bit more, I know you mentioned that you started your career in investment banking. Would love to know what drew you to venture capital and then maybe one or two things that really surprised you about being a venture capitalist, followed by going from being in venture capital and then starting your own fund. Yeah, that's a good question. So I left my investment banking job and I moved back to Seattle without having my next thing lined up. And that was a bit of a risk. I, when I talk to young people, I say, hey, don't follow in my path because <laughs> there's really only a couple funds in the Pacific Northwest that hire. And I knew I wanted to work for one, given I got to know the team at Ignition Partners quite well. And so I moved back and started a little micro fund, very, very small, about a million bucks that was raised from external capital. And one of my mentors was like, hey, if you want to start practicing the art of venture capital, you should just start doing it. I'm like, well, I don't come from a super wealthy family where I can just start cutting 25, 50K checks into, into startups. And, and he said, okay, well, I'll open up my network. I'll invest 50K and you can go pitch them to invest. So I started this little microfund and, and that's where I got increasingly more ingrained in the Pacific Northwest community, understood what it's like to get in investment opportunities when you're a small 50K or 25K investor in a round of a million and a half or 2 million. And how do you stand out to founders? especially when the rounds are competitive. And a lot of it from what I learned is it's just, hey, you got to just 
we spend the time to develop personal relationships with these folks, similar to all aspects of life. We spend a lot of time at Fuse just getting to know these founders in person. We're taking them to dinners, to lunches, spending time with their significant others, understanding who are they as people. And it just, it, there's so much that we learn from that process of focusing on this region, spending the time to get to know these entrepreneurs over a lot of the just-in-time over Zoom investing that I think influences our investing decision in, in, in long-term investment. The biggest surprise for me throughout my career in ventures, you know, obviously there's long feedback cycles in this business. And so just being comfortable with that, trusting the process. Hey, you have your process, trust it. Good things will come if you put the work in. You never know where, when you're going to meet that next entrepreneur. It could be on a ski chairlift, who knows, right? And so as long as you're putting yourself out there and, and doing the weekend circuit, doing the night circuit, you have a good chance of continuing to build your network and found that next founder. And then as we think about how that's changed from us starting our own firm, I think it's just trying to build a culture that everyone on the team feels like they can always talk about the investment opportunities they have in front of them. I think where a lot of venture firms get in trouble is you have a larger team and then you have a bunch of very smart folks that are earlier in their career and they're seeing a lot of opportunities. They're focusing the majority of their time sourcing, but they don't necessarily feel comfortable talking about all the opportunities. Maybe they feel like, hey, if I bring an opportunity forward, the partnership views it as me using my political capital to surface this deal. Or maybe they view it as me trying to push this deal forward just by bringing it up in a larger partner meeting. And so for us, it's about culture and process. We sit down every Monday. We talk about every single investment opportunity the team saw. Even if it's a, if they think, hey, this isn't a fit, we still talk about it because it provides that safe space where everyone on the team can say, hey, maybe I'm unsure about this founder. This is a, a space that I don't know well, but right. everyone can talk. And then a lot of times what ends up happening is someone brings something forward and it's not a fit for them, or maybe they don't have the right experience, but someone else jumps all over it. And we started this firm as equal owners of the business. And so there's no building a resume here at Fuse. It's, just, it's building a firm and want our, everyone on the team to to feel that way and always feel comfortable bringing forward investment opportunities and talking freely. That's great. I respect that. What do you think are the most important characteristics to being a great VC? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's, you got to have the hustle and the EQ to put yourself in a position to find the opportunities, right? Mm -hmm. So that's one, you can't assume the best investments are going to walk through your door. I think if you do, you've already lost. A majority of our investments do come from our network, but there are some gems that we find from some of our outbound sourcing or just be going to the events that maybe you're tired and you don't want to go to, but you show up anyway. You just never know where the best investment opportunities are going to walk through. I think it's, right. so it's, it's having the EQ to put yourself in the right positions and develop relationships with the founders. For us, I think it's being the founder's first call in good times and more importantly, in bad times. Yep. So having that trust in the relationship where if they do lose a big customer, hey, maybe we lost a, our VP of sales or head of customer success. Do you have the relationship where they're going to call you first or do they feel like they need to hide it because you're going to, blow up or become irate or just having their back and continuing to be supported in good times and in bad. I think I've seen a lot of examples, particularly learning from folks like John Connors during my time at Ignition Partners, just how the best board members operate board management and work on developing relationships with founders. Right. Is the community very cooperative in Seattle in general, the VC community or even the founder community? Are, do people help each other? What's the climate, like the culture there? The vibe. Yeah, it is highly collaborative. It is highly helpful. The thing about Seattle, 
more than anything is it just it's cloudy a lot it's not like new york where there's events happening every single night there are a lot of events people do get out but it's a little bit more hey i'm gonna just go build great product. I'm not going to talk about it as much. And so that's one of the things that we help quite a bit on our portfolio and the broader community is just, hey, as a founder, storytelling has got to be one of your biggest strengths and one of your biggest assets. And I know there's this humble, I don't know what it is, this Nordic ethos in the air in the Pacific Northwest, but like you've got to get yourself out there, tell that big ambitious story. And a lot of founders that we meet, they built an incredible product. They have customers and they sometimes don't even realize what they have. And so we help them with that storytelling versus a lot of the founders we meet from other geos where it's like, Hey, I'm pounding my chest and which is great. But a lot of times as you dig in under the covers, though, we really haven't built anything or how much customer validation have we done. And so it's a great vibe. It's very humble. And because that's a great place to live, but we try and reinforce on a lot of companies that we back. It's like, hey, go, go tell that big picture, big vision story and real compete. Great. So now we're going to switch over to our four standard question segment. We're looking forward to hearing your answers. Number one is our NVCA question. The National Venture Capital Association advocates for public policy that supports the venture community and the American entrepreneurial ecosystem. If there is one thing that you would change about the venture capital industry or one policy that you would advocate for, what would it be? Yeah, I think it's I think it's about access, you know, making sure that a lot of venture firms are a bit more maybe accessible than they are right now. Because if you're a founder that doesn't have the network, or maybe you come from a background where you haven't been in technology or venture capital for a long period of time, it can be hard to get going. And there's individual partners and investors at venture firms that do a really good job of making sure they're accessible, whether it's just the small things like having your email on the website or having open office hours where founders can come in and just have a safe space to discuss. But, and I don't know how this turns into a policy, but just advocating for more access for people that don't have a mutual introduction or a warm intro to get introduced to to venture folks. I think a lot of times we have a lot of these company meetings every single week, but I always try to remind myself, hey, this might be the one VC pitch that the entrepreneur has that month. And so how do you bring the passion, bring the energy, try to provide real feedback, try and be helpful in that meeting and not just, you know, because a lot of times, you know, in the first 10 minutes, whether this is going to be a fit for the fund, how do you not disengage so some more access from people that come from slightly different backgrounds that don't haven't been ingrained in this world for a long period of time. I think that's the biggest knocking. It can be just a little bit hard to break in. Great answer. Number two is if you weren't a VC and money wasn't a concern, what career would you have? Yes, I think it would be something in, uh, this is a weird answer, but I thought about this for a while. Is like, there's a big shortage of daycares in Seattle. <laughs> and so I'd start like a something my friends who are having kids, it's just so hard for them to find great care. And so I don't have kids, but I, I think kids are great. And so I would start some sort of like a in-person physical daycare, you know, so much of software, it's like not, it's hard to touch and feel yep. versus, Hey, walking into a, an actual uh, place where people come every day and learn and grow. And I think kids are inspiring because they just haven't been jaded by the world like right. a lot of like a lot of us have and random answer i don't know why so would I, you also be working the daycare i don't know i don't know i don't know about that i haven't thought, <laughs> okay. I haven't thought about it just starting you know, one i know I, re I respect it just starting one because there's a need in the market and kids deserve right. a fun place to go hang out right. i think it'd be fun to like 
swing by and say hi. I don't know if I have the the capacity to be there for eight hours a day. <laughs> yeah, no, I hear you. That yeah. was a first for us, but I think it's a great answer. And I think now we got to know you a little bit better, which is the whole point of these questions. Number three is who is someone that you look up to and why? Yeah, this one's an easy one for me. It's a little bit of a cliche answer, but it's my dad for sure. He immigrated here from Iran and he moved to Eastern Oregon randomly, worked on a farm. He got a uh, Eastern Oregon State University and the grant was starting a soccer team. He was lucky. He joined the soccer team, not because he was particularly great at soccer, was because they needed players because they were just starting. And he just, he just worked hard. He read the dictionary in his downtime to learn the language. And then he was able to build a successful career as an engineer at Boeing. And it's just seeing some of the struggles, someone like that, or some, a lot of of these immigrants go through when they move to the U S and how they just persevere. Obviously my dad, I got to see the direct insight into that, but we look a lot for those qualities in the founders that we back as well. Some of the most resilient founders are folks of immigrant backgrounds who just, you know, they had to go through some really hard times and they're just very resilient. That's great. Number four is what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? This is a good one. John Connors, who was at Ignition Partners, who's one of the two GPs there I worked with most closely at Ignition Partners. He is probably one of the most inspiring people I've ever met. And so he wasn't one to give advice often, but I remember being down because we had just chased this investment opportunity. It wasn't based in Seattle. So we didn't really have a Massive edge was on the East Coast and we ended up losing. He said, Hey, if you're not losing occasionally, you're not chasing the best companies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which I was like, Okay, that makes me feel a little bit better. And then he told me a different time, he's like, Cam, why don't you just be aggressive like those Bay Area or New York associates? This is when I was starting my career. <laughs> and he knew it's not really advice, but he knew it was very tailored to me because he knew I was mm-hmm. hyper competitive. And so he, if he said, You know, be more aggressive like a Bay Area or a New York associate, that I would just light the fire. Right. So I I, I think the advice that is tailored for the individual really, I just remember those two pieces of feedback. One to make me just be like, okay, put it in the rear view and focused on moving forward. And one to just get me extremely fired up. He's one of the best in terms of inspiring people. So I know it's not super general, but I just popped in my head. Cameron, thank you very much for joining us today. Really enjoyed learning about you and Fuse. Awesome. Appreciate the time, y'all. Thank you. And follow us on Twitter at ProofVC or on our website at Proof.VC.